Welcome to the Danny Picard Show, Wednesday, May 25th, 2016. Broadcasting from the Beantown Athletics Studio in Boston, Beantown Athletics, your only source for customized screen printing and embroidery, BeantownAthletics.com. Today's show is presented by SeatGeek. SeatGeek has made it easier than ever before to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. Now, what's great about SeatGeek is the price you see is the price you get. Most sites will try to surprise you at checkout with these outrageous fees, but not SeatGeek. So make sure you download the free SeatGeek app right now and get a $20 rebate on tickets by using the promo code PICARD. That's right, as in my last name, PICARD. Now, the Red Sox have a couple more games at home this week against the Colorado Rockies. And if you're interested for more than just the game and you're looking for another reason to get tickets, I mean... Fenway's a great place to be anyways for a ball game, but there's always something going on. Like, the Red Sox always seem to have something else, some type of entertainment. Tonight, on this Wednesday night, the Red Sox, they're going to honor the 1986 Boston Red Sox. Now, that's the team that won the American League, went to the World Series, and ended up losing to the Mets in the World Series. You don't need me to remind you of that. But this team, the 1986 Red Sox, they're going to be honored at Fenway tonight I assume before the game, and then tomorrow night before the game, they are going to retire Wade Boggs' number 26. It'll be Wade Boggs' night at Fenway. So if you're looking for another reason to get to Fenway, other than just to see the Red Sox and their downright dominant offense, and they had another downright dominant offensive performance last night against the Colorado Rockies, and a great start from David Price, and we'll get to all that on today's show. But if you're looking to get to Fenway for reasons maybe other than the game, well, the next two nights, pretty important nights, especially if you were a fan of the 1986 Red Sox or a fan of Wade Boggs. So what you need to do is download the SeatGeek app right now. And again, $20 rebate on tickets. You get $20 back by using a simple promo code. Just type in my last name, Picard. And what you can do is any event, sporting event, concert, any city, any venue, it doesn't have to be just Boston, it doesn't have to be just sports, anything. You can go to the SeatGeek app, you can set an alert, and what they'll do is they will let you know when ticket prices fall so you can get the best deal possible, even better. Every ticket is given a grade, and you can use their detailed map to see the exact view from your seat. You want to know where you're sitting, right? You want to know what the view is like from that seat if you're going to pay money for it. Uh, But SeatGeek, look, always the first place I go to get tickets to a game or concert, it should be the first place you go as well. And once again, a $20 rebate on tickets by using the promo code PICARD, as in my last name, on the free SeatGeek app. Make sure you get it right now. So there's a lot to talk about today on this Wednesday, May 25th. I will give you my reaction to the latest Boston Bruins move, the latest signing. You know, they're not bringing in anybody new, and they're not letting anybody go, and maybe that's the real problem here. I'll get to that. I'll get to what the Bruins did yesterday, which confuses me and frustrates me. I will close out the show with that. Um, You know, because I just, what they did... A lot of people are making it the top story here in this town, and I get it. It is a big story, but it's not really a big name. It's a big story because it's frustrating, it's confusing, and at the end of the day, it really doesn't make anything any sense and, and doesn't 
really help this Bruins team right now. So, I'll, But I'll get to that. I'll get to what the Bruins did. I'll close out the show with my thoughts on that because I do have some passionate thoughts. But, I mean, the, the name that I'm going to throw out there to you, it's just not it, it's not top story worthy, in my opinion. It's, it's just not. It's not top story worthy. Now, the top story in the national sports world has got to be what happened last night in the NBA playoffs in the Western Conference Finals. And that's the Oklahoma City Thunder taking a 3-1 to series lead over the Golden State Warriors. And for the second straight game, not just beating Golden State in Oklahoma City, but giving them an ass-whooping like you could never even believe somebody would give the Warriors, not even in just one game, but two straight games. Oklahoma City last night, they beat Golden State 118-94 to in Game 4. And as I mentioned, Oklahoma City now has a 3-1 to series lead in the Western Conference Finals. I got my pick wrong. I picked Golden State. But, I mean, come on. Is there anybody? Like, you can't give me heat for that. Because is there anybody that honestly believed, even with Steph Curry being a little banged up? Because, let's face it, as banged up as Steph Curry was and, and, and as bad as that injury to his knee looked, He's returned, and he's had some pretty damn good games, even in this series. Uh, you look at that, that second game in which he just went off on that one stretch. I mean, so don't give me that Steph Curry is this banged-up ball player that, that, that can't go full speed every night. I've seen him go full speed. I've seen him hit the big shot still. You know, is he banged up? Okay, yeah, I, he is banged up, but I mean, come on. Don't tell me that that's the only reason this is going on, and I, I honestly don't think it's a home court advantage thing either. Like, I think we're beyond that. I think what Oklahoma City is doing defensively is just they have stepped up their game to the point where uh, they're giving the Warriors fits, and the Warriors don't know. They don't have a response to it, and if the Warriors aren't hitting their threes, because that's usually their, their response, right? That's usually Golden State's response to some tough defense. What is it usually? It's they go on a run with these crazy three-point shots. Now, last night, Golden State got back in this game, what, in the, in, in the third quarter, right? The Golden State outscored Oklahoma City 29-22 to in the third quarter, and they really did it because Klay Thompson went off. Klay Thompson went off at one stretch. I mean, it was like he was saying, give me the ball. I'm going to hit some threes. I'm going to drive to the basket, pull up for some jump shots. I'm going to hit those two. Clay Thompson was a guy in the third quarter that sort of took the team on his back, got them within, what, seven or eight, I think, at one point. But it just wasn't enough because you look at Steph Curry, six for 20 from the field, two for 10 from the three-point line. Usually when Golden State, when a team's defense is giving them fits, how do they get out of it? They're hitting their threes. And they're hitting their threes with a guy in their face. And if there's, there's a guy in his face, guess what Steph Curry's going to do? He's just going to shoot from a little bit deeper behind the three-point line so that you're not even in his face, but he can hit that deep shot. We're used to seeing Golden State make shots like that and all of a sudden get some momentum and just deflate the other team because they can't, you know, because Golden State doesn't stop hitting those shots. And when, But when those shots are not falling and you're on the road and another team's playing suffocating defense and they have some scorers that are hitting their threes, like Westbrook had a couple big threes last night in this one. Westbrook had 36 points, hit four of his eight three-pointers. You know, if the Golden State's threes are not falling, then uh, and if Steph Curry's shots are not falling, then they're going to have a tough time against a defense that's suffocating them the way Oklahoma City's defense is suffocating them. And Oklahoma City wins it big last night. They have a 3-1 series lead. But even with the Steph Curry injury and, and what's going on, who, honestly, who would have thought 
that Oklahoma City would be leading this series three games to one, right? I mean, I would have thought you were a little nuts if you told me this would be two to two after four games. But I'd give you two to two before I gave you three to one. Like, if you told me that Oklahoma City would be going back to Golden State for game five and the Thunder would have a three to one series lead, if you told me that before the series, I'd laugh in your face and I'd say, well, I guess you haven't watched Golden State much in the last year and a half, right? Uh, so here we are now, going into game five. It's going to be tomorrow night. And when I look at the early spread for this one, Golden State is a seven-point favorite at home for game five. You know, my concern with that spread and, and the concern with actually taking Golden State to win this game, much like I have the la- you know in game four and I took them in game two. I got game two right. I didn't get – actually, I picked them in game three and four as well. But when you see them lose game three, I told you yesterday on the podcast that it would be another lock to take them in game four. Well, I got that lock wrong. And as much as I'm sitting here thinking about taking Golden State again uh, with their backs against the wall and they're a seven-point favorite in game five, I I guess I I wonder, is this, like I just mentioned, is this more than just home court? Like, was the last two games, is it more than home court advantage? Is, Is it more than that? Is it just that Oklahoma City has figured out Golden State, and if they're going to play defense like that and Golden State's not hitting their shots, then they have no answer and no response to Oklahoma City? You know, it's, just, it's a legitimate question right now. But what you're hearing from Golden State's locker room today is they know what type of season they just had. Sure, they might know that Steph Curry's a little banged up, but they also know that Even being banged up, he's had some pretty big games in the playoffs this year. All right, you go back to game two. He won on that run, that stretch. But but what you're hearing out of Golden State's room is they're not going to go down or go out like this. Right? That's what they're telling you. That's what they're telling us. And while I go back and forth on what my pick will be for game five as Golden State is a seven-point favorite with their backs to the wall down 3-1, and the concerns that I just had for Golden State against this Oklahoma City team that's just rolling right now, that's playing inspired basketball, that does have two stud players in Durant and Westbrook, that's playing suffocating defense. You know, all those factors combined, as much as I think about everything here, I I think I sort of, like, I I think I believe Golden State. Like, I think I believe them when they say they're not going to go out like this. Their season has been... Way too good. It has to go out like this. Now, when I say like this, I don't mean at this point down 3-1. Look, the, the odds are not in their, in their favor, obviously, like to win this series and get to the NBA Finals. If there's one team to do it, to go on a run and hit big shots and get three straight games of dominant shooting from Klay Thompson and Steph Curry... It, from their gods, it would be Golden State, right? This would be the team to do it if there's any team to do it. And if there's any team that will say, coming home for a game five down 3-1 that says, we're not going out like this, it would probably be the team that has the most wins in a single season in the history of the league, like this Golden State team that just had their 73rd regular season win, right? This year. I mean, this is the team that, if they say we're not going out like this, I guess you kind of... You know, you, you lean towards believing them, and that's where I'm at right now. Like, that's where I'm leaning towards. I'm, I'm leaning towards believing Golden State. Sure, could they go to game six back in Oklahoma City and lose that game? The way I've seen Oklahoma City play defense in this series? Yeah, I could see that. But when Golden State says we're not going out like this, 
What I'm going to take from that is they're going one game at a time, and if they go one game at a time, not going out like this means not going out losing at home in a five games, and only this being a five-game series, and getting embarrassed in the last two, and then losing the final one. Like, I'm leaning towards believing Golden State. They're right. They are not going to go out like this. They might not win this series anymore, but I don't think they're going to go out like this. Perhaps it takes a game six in Oklahoma City that's a nail-biter, and Durant or Westbrook or both of them step up and make these big shots, and they create their own postseason legacy for themselves in Golden State. Maybe they get great games from Curry and Thompson in that game six in Oklahoma City, but guys like Durant and Westbrook, maybe they answer them. And maybe Golden State will say, you know what, we can't hang our head with how we played in game six. We just look back and regret how we played in games three and four. And we got, you know, just whooped in those two games. Just an ass whooping in both of those games. That's what we regret, not game six. So when Golden State says, we're not going to go out like this, I'm leaning towards believing them. And I'm leaning towards Golden State's going to have a huge game at home in game five and and bring it back to Oklahoma City. Right? I mean, right? <laughs> I know it's looked great for Oklahoma City. It's looked terrible for Golden State the last two games. And I know I just told you, I don't even think it's a matter of home court at this point. But if it's a matter of Steph Curry coming into a big game with the backs against the wall, saying, we're not going out like this, and he went 2 for 10 from the three-point line with 19 points last night, 6 of 20 from the field, you got to think that Steph Curry, as banged up as he may be, is still capable of hitting big shots. We've seen it with this knee injury. So he's still capable of putting that cape back on and playing the role of Superman. And I think he could do it in Game 5 with the, the season on the line. Desperation. I, I'm, I'm leaning. I'm talking myself into believing Golden State, and I'm talking myself into right now on this Wednesday afternoon picking the Warriors to win Game 5 and force a Game 6 back in Oklahoma City. I don't think that's a crazy thought. I don't. I don't. And that's where I'm leaning towards right now with this series. So uh, that's what we had last night. Warriors say they're not going out like this, and I'm starting to believe them. I am. As bad as it's it's looked for them the last two games, and it's looked very, very bad. Tonight, game five, Cleveland, Toronto in Cleveland. The Cavaliers lost the last two in Toronto. The Raptors have battled back. I've given credit where credit's due to Kyle Lowry. who had a huge game last game. So did DeMar DeRozan. Those two guys have stepped up when the Raptors have needed them most. They even a series of two. I did not think we'd be here with this series either. But I'm not going to throw in the towel on Cleveland. Kevin Love's a little banged up. Let's not get all crazy with controversy in the Cavaliers locker room. Like, let's not do that shit right now. I don't believe that to be the case. I think Cleveland is still in a good spot. This is basically a best of three, and they get two of the next three at home in Cleveland. The Cavaliers are an 11-point favorite tonight for this game five. It's a big spread. Toronto's played them very well, but I just I still see Cleveland being a team that has the potential to roll, and I think when they're at home and they just lost the last two, I'm expecting a huge game from LeBron James tonight and uh, a big game from Kyrie Irving. And I think Cleveland's going to roll tonight and take a 3-2 series lead where they could potentially close it out back in Toronto for game six. But that's, so that's where I'm going tonight. Cleveland, I think, will take this game five. It's an 11-point spread. It's very high. It's a very high spread. 11 points. But guess what? I'm, I'm, I think Cleveland wins, and I think they win big tonight. 
I've, I haven't been good the last couple games. I was, I had, I've had some very good NBA playoff picks, though. you got to admit, I have. I've had some very good ones. The last couple Golden State-Oklahoma games, I have not gotten those right, even the last Cleveland game. But this one, I'm feeling confident in Cleveland. Cavaliers, huge game from LeBron tonight, 11-point favorite. I'm taking the Cavs. So that's what we got in the NBA playoffs. That's the top storyline, really, in the national sports world. Uh, let's just get the Stanley Cup playoff thing out of the out of the way real quick before I get to um, what I think it, it, what I think should be the biggest local storyline that is not Bruins related, by the way. Like I, this Bruins stuff. I'm gonna close out the show with my thoughts on Kevin Miller, but I still don't think that's the top Boston storyline. You know what? Maybe you could say with this top Boston storyline that I might be digging or maybe searching or or maybe creating this story myself. And you know what? That might be the case. But that's what happens when you show up every day in the studio and you play the role of imaginary GM. And that's exactly what I'm going to do today and put myself in the shoes of the GM or president of baseball operations of the Boston Red Sox because this is something that I think probably should be the top story in the world of Boston sports. At least it would be if I were running the show for the Boston Red Sox. But I'll get to that real quick, though, just to take care of the playoff talk as we just did NBA playoffs. Stanley Cup playoffs. Last night, uh, Pittsburgh, the Penguins went into Tampa Bay, as I told you they would, and they won 5-2, to two, and the Penguins forced the game 7. Uh, that game 7 is going to be in Pittsburgh tomorrow night. Sidney Crosby just with, you know, just a, an absolute street beast. One of the goals he had last night. Um... Just takes it from the neutral zone, goes by two guys, comes in, makes a move, and buries it. That That's why he's the best player in the world. That goal right there. And Pittsburgh wins it. They go on the road. They force a game seven. They bring it back home. I expect the Penguins to win. Uh, so I expect the Penguins to get to the Stanley Cup final. Who will they play? Well, the Sharks and the Blues tonight. This one tonight in San Jose. Game six of the Western Conference Finals. San Jose won game five. The Sharks have a 3-2 to two series lead. I think San Jose closes it out tonight. It'll be interesting to see who St. Louis goes to in net. They've made a switch in this series. Did they switch back? Who knows? But I think San Jose will wrap it up at home. And I think the Stanley Cup Final will be Pittsburgh and San Jose. That's what I think is going to go on in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So we'll move on from playoff stuff and get to a little, just a regular season story here. Because last night, the Red Sox at Fenway uh, with a big win. They win their third straight. They defeat the Colorado Rockies 8-3. to Now, because Baltimore lost in 13 innings to Houston last night, the Red Sox are in sole possession of first place in the division. And Jackie Bradley Jr. extends his hit streak to 28 games. David Price with his third straight strong start. David Price last night picks up his seventh win of the season. He's now 7-1 and one with a 5.34 ERA. The record really doesn't tell the story because he has not been a 7-1 and one pitcher this year. He's not been that good. But at least if you want to break it down and look at the last three in which he's made sort of this mechanical je- adjustment in which... I don't know, he's, he's lifting the leg higher, but I think it also has to do with the glove. Like, he wants that glove and the leg moving as if they're on a string. But one thing I see from David Price, and maybe this is the leg kick and the glove, you know, the, the increase in height with the glove when he comes up with it, comes up a little higher. I, I don't know. 
But what he does is he's driving off the rubber. Like he just looks, it just, it just looks a lot more dominant, right? It just looks like there's an aggressiveness bouncing off that rubber that he didn't really have in some of those starts at the beginning of the season in which he struggled to find his velocity. So David Price just is in this attacking mode when he does deliver a pitch, and it's an attacking style where he's driving off the rubber, and it just... You just feel more comfortable with it because the velocity is there. And when the velocity is there with a guy like this, it makes his changeup that much better. And it even makes his cut fastball that much better on the outside. You know, when he's throwing that cutter to a right-handed hitter. Now, Price, look, he's been so good in his career. He's going to get some calls on the outside. He is. Some calls that you might say, wow, that's questionable. David Price is going to get that call more than some other guys in the league because of what Price has been able to do. So you, you factor that into the velocity and the increase in velocity where he can dial it up to 96 if he wants. You know, he's got some pop on that fastball, but really he's got the pop on the fastball back because he's driving off that rubber. Is that with because of the leg kick and moving the hands up higher, moving the glove up higher before the pitch? I don't know. Is it in his head? Maybe. It might be. But guess what? The bottom line is this. they It looks like they fixed it. And David Price now, three... Very strong starts in a row. We were begging for him to give us uh, really some consistent, strong outings, and that's what he's done. And last night, David Price, six strikeouts, only walked one. He did allow three runs, one home run, five hits in seven innings through 108 pitches. But David Price, a big night last night at Fenway, and it's just it's a breath of fresh air to see him now string together three straight dominant uh, you know, you want to use the word dominant, uh, maybe dominant, not dominant last night, but but strong, very strong. How about this? Strong enough to the point where you shouldn't be worrying about David Price anymore. At least I am not, and that's because he found his velocity. I mentioned Jackie Bradley Jr. How about David Ortiz? Continues to do it. Drives in four runs last night. He went two for four with four RBIs. And, uh, you know, Big Poppy continues to get it done at the plates. And the Bogots, two for four. He's hitting 349. Dustin Pedroia, three for four. He's hitting 303. You know, Jackie Bradley Jr. in this hit streak, he goes two for four last night. He's hitting 346. I mean, the Red Sox, right now, this offense, they can't be stopped. And you wonder, is there anybody in this Rockies rotation that's going to stop him? Well, tonight it's going to be righty Chad Bettis on the mound. Uh, I think he he could fit better than De La Rosa last night for Colorado. I told you Jorge De La Rosa was going to get lit up and be chased out of this game early last night, and he was chased out in the fourth inning after allowing seven runs. So, um, yeah, the Red Sox, they should be able to at least win two of three against this Colorado team. And, and as we keep an eye on the big club, we keep an eye on the pitching staff, because outside of David Price, let's face it, we still got questions. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there'll be some more questions in the bullpen as the season goes on. Not with Craig Kimbrell, but I think maybe in the seventh or eighth inning role, no Carson Smith. He's at, he had Tommy John surgery yesterday. I reacted to that on yesterday's podcast. I think that's a tough loss for this team because I really did think that Carson Smith was going to play it was going to have a major impact on this team to the point where I thought the eighth inning was eventually going to be his. I think he's that good. It's just unfortunate we didn't get to see it play out, and it's going to be a while till we do because Tommy John, as you know, is not a quick fix. 
it's at least a full year, right? At least, and we'll see. Especially with Carson Smith's sort of funky delivery. I, I, I don't know how that will affect this and how that will affect his recovery or when he does recover, what it's going to look like when he comes back. Now, you know, there's a whole lot of success with Tommy John. Like, there's many success stories with this type of surgery. To the po- almost to the point where you, you sort of look at it and go, all right, good, just get it out of the way. Just get it over with. And a lot of times guys return and they say they throw harder. You know, they, they have more velocity, more pop in their fastball after the Tommy John. So will Carson Smith have that? Maybe. I mean, Carson Smith's best pitch was his slider to go along with his fastball. But also, he's got this funky delivery, and I guess I have concerns. You know, how does that delivery that's not really a normal delivery, like how will that be affected by the Tommy John? I just don't know the answer to that question. But it's going to be a while till we actually get it, at least a full calendar year. So uh, it's disappointing, uh, and, and I, think, I do think it's a tough loss. And somebody tweeted me yesterday, well, Danny, the Red Sox have been fine without him. And I say, yeah, okay, I know. But there have been some warning signs with someone like Koji. Now, Koji was very good last night, but there have still been some warning signs. Even when Koji has success, there are some things, some pitches he gets away with, away with in which I say, eh, I don't know. Like, I, just, I still don't know that I feel comfortable with him. As, at least I don't feel as comfortable with Koji on the mound in a big spot as I did two years ago. Like It's not even close two or three years ago. It's not even anywhere close. And Tazawa, I still have some concerns with him. I just thought that Carson Smith, his stuff was so good that that eighth inning was going to be his, and we were going to feel extremely comfortable with Smith and Kimbrell in the eighth and the ninth. We'll still have Kimbrell in the ninth, but we will not have Smith in the eighth. So I think, could we have some questions about that spot? Like when we get to the deadline, could the Red Sox be maybe looking to go out and get a reliever? Yeah, I think that could be a situation that they could find themselves involved in. They could find themselves involved in maybe trying to go out and get a left fielder at some point before the deadline. But I think the biggest thing the Red Sox need to get themselves involved in before the trade deadline is getting themselves another starting pitcher. Like, I think that should be the priority because outside of David Price, you know, as good as Stephen Wright has been, uh, as good as Rick Porcello has been, as good as Joe Kelly looked on Saturday painting that 97-mile-per-hour fastball on the outside to right-handed hitters, um, I'm just not sitting here with the utmost confidence that all of those guys are going to be able to keep it up to the point where we're going to look at this Red Sox rotation come mid to late July and say, you know, you don't just have an ace. You also have, you have a one and you have a one A. Like, that's what it takes to win a championship in this league. You can go back to last year's postseason. You don't just need one dominant starting pitcher. You need two. And right now, I do think as good as Porcello and Wright have been, and as good as Kelly looked on Saturday, the Red Sox are still looking to figure out who that number two guy, or at least who that number two guy is in the rotation to the point where you think at some point between now and the postseason, you consider your 1A. Like, Price is your 1, you need someone to be the 1A. Is this somebody who's the 1A? No. I think in a perfect world, the way Porcello's pitching right now, or the way Wright's pitching, even though Wright, Wright has lost his last two, I believe, but still, I mean, he, the last one he lost, what, over the weekend, he went, what did he go? I mean, complete game, right? He had a, right? Didn't he have a complete game loss or something? Uh, still, it's a knuckleball. In a perfect world, like, Porcello's your number three, and you bring in another guy to, to be a, the 1A. And... 
you know, we know it's not going to be Buckholtz. I don't mention him because obviously he's struggling and there's, there's no expectations for Buckholtz to be that guy. I think you do need to dip out of the organization to get that guy if Eduardo Rodriguez it won't be that guy. And I know Eduardo Rodriguez last night because people are raving about this. Eduardo Rodriguez, and I'm a little conf- I won't lie to you. I will not lie to you. I'm a little confused with the Eduardo Rodriguez situation because they were just telling us last week when he was yanked from his start last Thursday in AAA Pawtucket, they would not let him make his, I think it was going to be his fifth rehab start in AAA. They told, they said they were going to shut him down from game action because he went to the Red Sox and still had an issue with his knee. He had some pain in that knee, the knee that he hurt in spring training. The reason that he's been on the DL since the end of February, right? He had some pain in the knee all of a sudden, and I guess that explains some of Eduardo Rodriguez's struggles in his minor league rehab stints. I've always felt this way about Eduardo Rodriguez, is that he's got power stuff, 95, 96 mile per hour fastball. I think, you know, at 22, 23 years old, he's the type of kid that I think can be a stud, and I think can be, he has the stuff in his toolbox to be the 1A in this Red Sox rotation, essentially the number two. Like, I believe he can be that guy but he's got to be healthy. And I think he's so young that you don't want to mess with this knee injury right now. And if it's still hurting him, well, I, I agree with shutting him down from game action. But but here's the problem. Here's why I'm confused. You shut him down from game action, you take him out of that start Thursday, and you're telling me that you fit him with a knee brace and that you fixed the problem. I don't know what type of magical fucking knee brace this is, but I just feel like the concern level that was there last week for that concern level to, to be completely erased from everybody's memory because of a friggin' knee brace that, that was fitted for him, and you say it gave him a little more confidence, and I guess that sort of rubbed off on him last night, that confidence, because Eduardo Rodriguez, you know, the talk right now with him was he did make a start for AAA Pawtucket last night, and he went seven strong innings, allowed four hits, allowed one run on a solo homer, he struck out seven guys, didn't walk anybody, and um, he threw 102 pitches, 69 for strikes. Now, there's, what, 10 days left on his rehab clock, so it's they're not rushing Eduardo Rodriguez back, and nor should they. But, I mean, here's my problem with it. I don't want you to look at the seven innings. I don't want you to look at just the one run or the four hits or even the uh, seven strikeouts and no walks. 102 pitches, like I don't, and the confidence. I don't want you to look at that. What I need you to look at is what was his velocity? You know, did he have that? Was he was he pumping him in there in the mid 90s? And if he is, you're using the lower body for that. And one thing we've heard about Eduardo Rodriguez, especially from someone Pedro Martinez came out and said this a month ago, and I, I've said, you know what? I wasn't thinking of this. It's that when you have a lower body injury, you know, you need to build up the strength in that lower body again. And when you're somebody who's just Eduardo Rodriguez type who can pump that fastball in at 95, 96, you know, you get that velocity from your lower body, from that drive off the rubber, like we're just seeing now from David Price again. Well, Eduardo Rodriguez last night did not have the velocity. He had a 90, what, it was 90, 91, 92, low 90s fastball. That's not the fastball that Eduardo Rodriguez brings to the table. That's not the fastball that made him one of the top prospects in all of baseball. That's not the fastball that made the Red Sox trade for him in that Andrew Miller deal two years ago. All right? That's not the fastball that gave Eduardo Rodriguez success to the point where, you know, 
I ended up loving the kid when he came up last year in his first start when he pitched that game in Texas when the Red Sox desperately needed a strong start from someone in the rotation, and Rodriguez gave it to him because he's got the velocity. Last night, Eduardo Rodriguez for AAA did not have the velocity. That's a problem. Forget about the other numbers, folks. He's pitching in AAA. He's got a lower body injury. They just took him out of game action and shut him down last week. All of a sudden, they fit him for a knee brace, and they're saying everything's fine? Everything's not fine. I'm not looking at, 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 the, at the line last night, his pitching line. I'm looking at the velocity. If the velocity's not there, he's not ready. And if the velocity's not there, he's not ready because the lower body and that knee just isn't right yet. Don't give me this magical knee brace shit's going to fix everything because it's not. Give this some more time. I am, you cannot rush this kid back. I think he's too important to your franchise. He's too important to your organization. And I don't think there's any need for it right now. Especially, especially when you're an organization that has the assets to go out and make a blockbuster trade for a starting pitcher. And that's exactly what I want to see the Red Sox do. It's what I want to see the Red Sox do. And that's why when I come into the studio today and I see this Eduardo Rodriguez stuff, and I see, though, that the velocity was down still, and I still... I don't want to rush him back. And I know the Red Sox still need that, you know, that, that dominant starter, that other guy, if they want to be a championship team. They need it. Well, there's a name that's come up around Major League Baseball that I, I got to throw out there. That I got to throw out there. Hold on. Let me, let, me, let me put my GM cap on here. Let me put my imaginary GM cap on. All right. There it is. It fits. It's good. Still fits. Still fits great. And when I put my imaginary GM cap on, I'm going to play the role of Red Sox GM. I mean, this isn't anything new if you listen to me. I do this every fucking day. There's a name that's out there who is struggling, struggling, okay? And if you pay attention to Major League Baseball, I think you know exactly where I'm going. He goes by the name of Matt Harvey, New York Mets. Picks up his seventh loss of the season last night in D.C. against the Nationals. It was a 7-4 game. Javi went five innings, allowed eight hits, five earned runs, allowed three home runs in this one, walked two, only struck out one, and only threw 84 pitches. He is now 3-7 and seven on the season with a 6.08 ERA the New York Mets have come out today. This is literally late-breaking news as I'm recording this podcast. The Mets have said he will make his next start. He'll make his next start. What's well, going to be this weekend? He'll make his next start. But after last night's game, there was some serious discussion, and I'm sure serious consideration in the Mets organization to possibly, I don't know, either demote this kid to the minor leagues or maybe put him on the DL and try to figure him out that way, maybe get his mind right. Bottom line is this, Matt Harvey has been absolutely brutal. And if I'm the Boston Red Sox, I look at Harvey, who turned 27 in March. He's 27 years old. You know, you're looking at him with, yeah, he, he's a Boris guy. And last year you had the whole innings limit situation, which I didn't like one bit. And I even told you, I even told you last year that that was you know, going into the playoffs or at the end of the regular season, like, I didn't like that conversation. I didn't. The fact that you were even having it was, to me, just, you know, Matt Harvey was their guy. He was their ace. I, and, look, they got, a whole, they got a whole staff of aces. 
DeGrom, Syndergaard, you look at Mats, you look at Zach Wheeler's going to be coming back from Tommy John. I mean, they get a bunch of kids who can pump that fastball in the mid to upper 90s. That's, I think, the best rotation in all of baseball. And I told you last year that the Javi stuff concerned me to the point that when people saw the controversy and they said the Red Sox should go get him, I said, no, I think you need to stay away. Let's see him in the postseason. Let's see. Because I want to know, like, is this kid not going to, is he not going to make his starts in the postseason? Like, does he care about that more than being part of a team that has a chance to win a championship when you don't get this opportunity very much? I wanted to see what happened in the postseason. And Matt Harvey, last year in the postseason, I dot did his part. Four starts, 26 and two-thirds innings, struck out 27, walked eight, had an ERA of 3.04, um, went 2-0. and oh. I... I liked Matt Harvey in the postseason last year to the point where when he comes into this season, I never even thought that this conversation of if you're the Mets moving Matt Harvey out of the rotation, whether it be trade or DL stint or minor league stint, I mean, I just never even thought it would be possible to have this discussion. It's what, his third full major league season. He's only 27 years old, but he's been struggling so bad right now. With a 6.08 ERA for a Mets team that has a lot of starting pitching. Like, they're they're deep in that position. And if you're the Mets, you certainly can afford to ship somebody out of town. You can. The problem if you're the Mets, if you think you're going to get into a trade discussion by sending Matt Harvey out of town, the problem there is... You know, you have, the, the trade value is as probably as low as it could possibly be, I, I guess, if another team wanted to play that way. If another team wanted to play their cards and, and call the Mets and say, hey, we'll, we'll take Matt Harvey off you for a, a, a low-level prospect and a minor league pitcher. Like, if somebody would have low-balled them like that, the Mets would hang up on the phone. They would hang up on them, hang the phone up. They would not even, I mean, it wouldn't even be a conversation. Um, but here's what you do. And that's why I have my GM cap on. If you're the Red Sox, you don't call Sandy Alderson the GM. No. You call the special assistant to the GM. Okay? You call J.P. Rashadi because he's really the guy, I believe, that's calling the shots for the Mets. He's the guy that's calling the shots. You call J.P. You say, J.P., hey, J.P., uh, Danny Picard here. Yeah, Boston Red Sox. Yeah, how you doing? What's going on? Um, Listen. I see what's going on with Matt Harvey and you guys, all right? And I'm not here to lowball you. I'm not here to waste your time. So, but I'd like to talk to you in person. I'd like to, I, I don't want to do this over the phone. I'd like to meet you in person. I think we should grab a cup of coffee, maybe grab some lunch, um, something to eat. Let's, let's shoot the shit. Let's talk about this because I got players that I'm looking to move. I have needs. You have needs. We both have needs and we both have assets. So... I, I think there's a deal to be made here, and I am not going to waste your time, I promise. I'm not going to waste your fucking time, okay? And I get to meet. I think we get to meet in there. I think we would. I think I'd get it. And during the meeting, Matt Harvey would be on the table. Now, I might even begin to get into, you know, a Zach Wheeler discussion, which I think the Red Sox should have had last year at the deadline, as I told you. And the conversation with Matt, Matt Harvey would be simple. It would be, how how do I take him off your hands? How do I take Matt Harvey and Scott Boris away from you? Because if I'm the Red Sox, I see Matt Harvey at 27, 
And, you know, I'm looking at what he brings to the table. I mean, he's still last night. Let's face it. In this game last night, would he have a tough um, tough third or fourth inning in this game last night against the Nationals? Oh, he had a tough fourth and fifth. Two runs in the fourth, three runs in the fifth. Um, with that said, there was still, you know, he, at times he was pumping in the fastball early at like 96, I saw. But they're saying when he got to the fourth and the fifth inning, the delivery changed. Like he had a different delivery. He was changing that up. It's a mechanical issue. As we saw with the Red Sox, they just fixed a mechanical issue with their ace, David Price. What I'd do if I'm the Red Sox GM is, I'd be, before I even went to see J.P. Rashadi, and before I even made the call, I'd be in the film room with Dustin Pedroia watching Matt Harvey film going, Petey, can you figure this out? Watch film of Matt Harvey last year, and now watch film of him the other night in the fifth inning against the Nationals. Like, what's he doing? Like, what's he doing? The hands down, the leg not coming up, the stride different. Is he on the right side of the rubber? Is that all we need to do? Do we need to pull a, a Jake Arrieta and just have him, you know, go from one side of the rubber to the other? Is that what we're going to go with right now? Um, so I'd, I'd be doing that. I'd, I'd have Pedroia in the film room checking out Matt Harvey film. But, I mean, if I'm the Red Sox, I think I'd be willing to even go as far as to give Matt Harvey a, a big contract, huge contract, with, with what, a one of these options. You know, we talk about all these options these pitches have. Like David Price, he has an option. And what's it, after the third year? You know, it, it keeps these guys motivated. And also, it would let someone like Matt Harvey opt out at a good time that I think would really get the attention of someone like Scott Boris, where if you just dominated for two or three years with the Red Sox if you, after you made the trade, well, they would know that's a perfect time for them to opt out and become a free agent. Right? I, I, I mean, to me, if I'm the Red Sox, bottom line is this. I have to notice the struggles with Matt Harvey. I have to know why he's struggling. If it's mechanical, that's n- if it's not injury-related, and again, I'm assuming that it's not injury-related. If it's not injury-related, because he is still, I saw him last night, he's still throwing 96. So how banged up could he be? You know, if it's in his head, if it's mechanics, and you think you can fix it, you think maybe a change of scenery, uh, you think maybe, you know, a contract with an opt-out might, might, might be able to work out for you with you, him and Boris. Look, I think I'd be willing to have a serious sit-down conversation with the Mets and say, how can we make this happen? We need a starting pitcher. He's struggling for you. I'm not going to lowball you. Um, but this would be a time in which maybe if you get into a discussion with the Mets right now and you don't lowball them, you might be able to win them over with a pretty damn good deal that doesn't end up giving them your top prospect. You get what I'm saying? Like, like... I think if you call them and again you you lowball the shit out of them because you see Matt Harvey struggling, you say, "Well, hey, you can't sell him high right now, so why don't you sell him low?" I think you pissed them off, and I think you don't get any type of deal, and you certainly aren't doing yourself a favor because at that point, when you do get into a serious conversation, I think the Mets will say, "Well, look, no, if we're gonna trade you, Matt Harvey, we want your top dogs," you know. And I'm not saying the Red Sox wouldn't have to give up something pretty damn good to get him; they would, but. I think this would be a perfect time if you're the Red Sox to maybe sneak in, weasel your way in, get in a good conversation, and perhaps you just begin the conversation now. You don't, Maybe you don't even need to make the move right this moment. 
But it's a good conversation to have. And if I'm the Red Sox GM, if I'm running the show, if I'm president of baseball operations, you know, I've already called J.P. Rashadi, right? I've already scheduled the meeting. I've already had the conversation. I'm on my way to Queens right now to meet with J.P., assuming that he's not in D.C. for this game, what, they're playing this afternoon against the Nationals. Uh, Getaway day, right? Uh, Assuming he's still in his offices in Queens, that's where I'm heading. I'm already there. This morning. I'm already eating lunch with him today. What's going on with Matt Harvey? How can I get him? I got a couple offers here that I'm going to extend to you. Here's a couple guys I cannot give up, but here are some guys that I can if it's the right deal, if it's the right package. Let's make let's make some magic happen here. And if we can't make it here today, at least you know that this is our interest level. These are our guys who are willing to give up. We know what you're asking for. Maybe we can come back to the to the dinner table at some point and work out a deal when we get closer to July 31st. Who knows? And you know what I mean? Like I I, I do think that this is a perfect opportunity to step in and let it be known we're willing to make a deal for a starting pitcher. I just, I, this is the move that I'd like to see be made. And if the Red Sox would be willing to do something like this, if they could land Matt Harvey, I would, I, now again, you'd have to, I need to see, the, what's the package? You know, like what, what is the package that's going to the Mets? Again, you're going to have to give up something pretty good, right? You're going to have to. But I, I, I think the Mets at this point would certainly be listening. I do think they'd be listening. I think they've had... Look, they they had the whole Boris thing last year with the innings limit. They had the little health scale with Javi at the beginning of the season, which he seems to be fine with right now. And who knows what other problems they might have with this guy at this point. I don't know. But what I can tell you is Matt Harvey, when he's on his game, is an absolute stud. And if you can get past some of those other issues that the Mets have already had to deal with, then maybe you get a change of scenery will do him good. With his struggles right now, I don't think this is who Matt Harvey is. I think who Matt Harvey is is the 191 strikeouts with 2.27 ERA in 2013 or the 2.71 ERA last year with the Mets. Like, that's the Matt Harvey. That's who I think this is. I I would be willing to make this type of move. And I don't think you'd have to, like, I don't think you'd have to give up a King's ransom. I really don't. But you're not going to lowball that's the, that's the point of this conversation. Like, you can't call the Mets and just completely lowball the Mets for Matt Harvey. But I think there's a deal to be made. And if I'm the Red Sox, I, I, I got to seriously try to do this. Like, you got to go after something like this. You can't let, like, you can't let something like this just fall into your lap. You can't rely on J.P. Rashadi and Sandy Alderson calling you about a Matt Harvey trade because they need something to do with him. And they can't figure it out. They can't figure him out. You know, you need to be... The aggressor. And and the good thing with the Red Sox is I think they have the guy to be that aggressor in Dave Dombrowski. I believe they do. So there's a conversation to be had. There's a serious conversation to be had. And the Red Sox have players that they can move. And the Mets have things that they need. And it's not pitching. It's offense. So... I think there's a deal to be made here. I really do. And I told you last year, I wasn't high on the idea of trading for Matt Harvey at the time, late in the season, or at the trade deadline when he was going through the, they were talking about the innings limits and that stuff was coming up. And, you know, it just, it didn't, it didn't leave me with a good taste in my mouth. And I just, I said, no, 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 I'm not going there yet. 
Like, I'm not making that move for Javi right now. Uh, but you see him struggle. And I think when you see him struggle, I mean, if you've watched him pitch, and even if you've seen him a little bit in these struggles, it's not like his velocity's down to 90-91, and that's why he's struggling, and everything's fat over the plate. It's, and his changeup has been up. His off-speed has been up in the zone at times. It's been very hittable, but they say that might have to do with his mechanics. Can you fix that? Maybe a change of scenery. Red Sox need another stud pitcher. I think Javi's still a stud. He's only 27. Um, I know he's a Boris guy, but the Red Sox still have money to spend. And I think if you wanted to really give him some type of contract that, let's face it, might be the type of deal in which, you know, you give him this opt-out after three years and then he's 30 years old and he has this opt-out and it's a perfect time for Scott Boris to pounce on a blockbuster deal, maybe using that David Price deal as sort of some leverage in an, at the negotiation table. I think it all see. I think it would all work out. I really do. And so there's a conversation, a serious one, to be had there. And if I'm the Red Sox GM or president of baseball operations, that's something that I am doing today. That, that's honestly like I'm going after this today. That's what I'd be doing. I would be going after this move today. I would. Even with Javi having a 6.08. ERA. And I would not be lowballing the Mets either. I wouldn't be playing that game. Like, I'm not going to waste their time. I'm not. And I think if you go into that conversation, don't lowball them and actually make them a pretty decent offer, given the way Javi has struggled. Man, if you're the Mets, you're not going to listen to that? If if you're the Mets, you're not going to listen to that? I got news for you. They're listening. You just got to go after it. And the Red Sox have the type of players to be able to make that deal happen. My advice should be, go out and make it happen. Go make it happen. So, uh, that is what I'd like to see the Red Sox try to do right now. We'll see. We'll see. I've been right before on some of these things. We'll see if they can actually get something done. But um, moving on from the Red Sox, closing out the show. Oh, actually, one other Red Sox thought. Tomorrow on the show, I will be joined by Sean McAdam. Comcast Sportsnet New England covers the Red Sox for CSNNE.com. I use them a couple times a year just to, uh, on the show, as a great guest to to do some Major League Baseball stuff, but mostly just some Red Sox. So I'll get his take on some of the topics with this Red Sox team. Maybe I'll bring up the Javi thing. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know if I want to just sort of blindside him with with that one. But, but, you know, maybe we'll get in the conversation of, of some names and some pitches that the Red Sox could acquire. And, you know, maybe he's thought of someone, and, and maybe he has an end. But we'll see. I'll, I'll talk with Sean McAdam tomorrow. We'll see how the conversation goes. But he's always a great Red Sox guest, so uh, looking forward to that on tomorrow's podcast. But finally, I'll wrap up the show as I told you I would with my thoughts on the latest Bruins move. Boston Bruins haven't made the playoffs in the last two years. They decide to bring the coach back. The coach is a defensive-minded guy. You know him, Claude Julien. You know that I wanted to see them bring Claude back. I thought it was the right decision. Um, And when I look at this Bruins team, I think it's very clear what they need to do this offseason, and what they need to do is they need to improve the defense. They need to improve the defense. What the Bruins did not do yesterday is improve the defense. (laughs) Okay? Um... The Boston Bruins yesterday signed defenseman Kevin Miller to a four-year contract extension worth $10 million. It comes out to $2.5 mil a year. 
Four years, 10 mil, two and a half mil a year. Kevin Miller, your number five, six defenseman on the Boston Bruins. Now, let me say this. First and foremost, you know I'm not a Kevin Miller fan, okay? I've never been one. I know he's a tough kid. I know you could use that toughness to say, well, he plays big, heavy style, plays Bruins hockey. Well, there's playing a big, heavy style and and playing Bruins hockey in that sense. But you also got to be at least decent at some other things, like like actual awareness of where you are on the ice in the defensive zone, which Kevin Miller has none of, has no awareness of where he is at any point in time in the defensive zone, does not know how to cover somebody out front of the net. Uh, could not control the puck on his stick if his life depended on him, so he cannot retrieve anything in his own zone cleanly enough that gives this Bruins team a shot uh, to 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 really do what they want to do, which is defense first, hockey, you know, from, from your goalie out, build from your goalie out, and get the puck, have a strong transition game, and that will help the offense. Offense, solid offense from even more solid defense. Kevin Miller does not help that out because while he throws his body around and he has big hits and he's a physical player and you want to call him a a tough Bruins-style hockey player in that regard, the the Bruins style, yes, it's toughness. Yes, it's finishing your checks. But it's not just that. Like, it doesn't just end at that. And I think that's where the misconception is with big, bad Bruins hockey, right? You got to have more than just throwing your body around. It's one thing if you make a big hit behind your own goal line. It's another thing if you make the big hit behind your own goal line, you get the puck, and then you feed it up the half wall just because you're panicking and you suck with the puck on your stick. Like, that's what Kevin Miller does. I mean, it's it's to me, it's also just a hockey IQ thing as well with him. So, and even defensively, like, just when he... When he doesn't, like on a three-on-two, anything in front of his own net, he doesn't know what's going on, and he's a turnover machine behind his own goal line on on top of it. I don't like Kevin Miller. I don't like his game. I don't think he's somebody that that you should be focusing on this offseason to bring back. With that said, with the focus, for people that say, well, this is one of the first moves you're going to make, this is the first move you're going to make to lock up Kevin Miller, well, I don't really look at it that way because... You, what other moves can you make? The, the playoffs is still going on. It's not like, like, I don't, you can't go out, can you make a trade right now? You can't make a trade right now, right? You have to wait till the season's over. Or free agency. You got to wait till free agency begins. So, like, you're really, you're limited in what type of moves you can actually make until the season is, until the playoffs are over, until that cup's been handed out and the cup's been hoisted. You're limited with the moves. So what you do in this point in time is you, maybe this is a good time to do your own house cleaning, you know, in, in your own kitchen, right? And that's what I think the Bruins are doing. They're taking care of the house cleaning in their own kitchen right now. And okay, I can understand that. I don't have a problem with that. So I don't have a problem that this might be one of the first moves made because I don't look at that and say, well, this is, they focus in their whole offseason on Kevin Miller. Like, I guess if there's one thing I want to be fair to the Bruins about, it's the timing part of this. Like, I'm not... I'm not going to jump all over them for the timing because with regards to timing, this is the time you take care of your own house cleaning, especially for guys who are not these big money potential free agents, you know, like a Louis Erickson. Like Louis is going to go test the free agent market. He is. And Louis has all the, he has all the leverage in the world on the Bruins. I do not think Louis is going to be back unless he takes some type of discount. Um, so... But the smaller names, the smaller money players, the players that know if they went out to the free agent market, they would not 
have many options at all. Uh, If you want to take care of those guys now, take care of those guys now. The problem I have with this is, you know what? It's not even the money. Like, I don't even, like, yeah, am I happy with the money? 10 mil for Kevin Miller? No, of course I'm not happy with it. I just told you how much I don't like Kevin Miller. How much he's, how terrible he is, okay? The problem I have is, just reading in the same sentence, Bruins sign Kevin Miller to four-year extension. Like, really? He turns 29 in November. A four-year contract for the kid? For the guy? What? Like, what are we doing? Like, the fact that I even have to do a podcast today, making that, reading that sentence off an email that I get from the team, is, is just confusing to me. Like, I don't, forget about the timing, and you know what? Forget about the money. Kevin Miller, four-year extension. Like, what planet am I on where the Bruins thought, all right, let's put the money aside for a second. How many years do we want to bring Kevin Miller in for? To, to, to keep him on this blue line so that we can watch him continue to turn the puck over below his own goal line, to throw it up the half wall like he's never played hockey before, and to, you know, just look completely lost on the defensive end when he doesn't have the... I mean, he looks lost when the puck's on his stick anyways. He, Kevin, let's face it. Kevin Miller is somebody that looks lost 95% of the time on the ice. 95% of his ice time. He is a lost soul on the ice. On what planet am I on where it would be a wise decision in the Bruins' front office or in anyone's front office to say, we want to give a guy who looks completely lost on the ice 95% of the time a four-year extension? Like, what? What planet am I on where that makes any fucking sense? Like, it's just stupid. Look, what are we doing? I don't understand it. I'm not, I'm not going to jump all over him for the timing. And you know what? The money, is it too high? Of course it is. It's obvious. But the biggest issue I have is you're going to bring him back for four years? Now, I know they don't. At least as far as I know, there's no trade clause, right? Now, excuse me. As far as I know, there's a... There's not a no-trade clause, right? Because if this deal has a no-trade clause, that would be the worst deal in the history of professional sports, and it would never be topped. It would forever be the worst deal in the history of professional sports. So, um, no, but I'm I'm pretty sure there is not a no-trade clause. So they could still move Kevin Miller. They could still send him somewhere, place him on waivers, send him down. Like, eh. There's things they can do with Kevin Miller still. So it's not like it's ga- it's four years guaranteed. I understand that. But but I just... I for, You give this guy a four-year deal. Like, when would that even... Like, when would that number come up? Internally. Don Sweeney, Cam Neely, they're sitting there going, all right, Kevin Miller, let's do some house cleaning. We're going to bring him back uh, because we like his physicality. And you know what? We're going to need a sixth defenseman. And if we make some of the moves, well... He'll be our sixth. Uh, so let's just keep him around just to be safe. But let's give him a four-year deal. <laughs> like, like, when would it get there? What, what did they think was going to happen? They thought Kevin Miller was going to say, you know what, we're going to get more. Now we'll get a four-year deal somewhere. We're going to get a couple more years on the free agent market, and we'll make some more money. We'll make more than 1.5 or 1.8. We'll make more than that. If you're the Bruins and he says that, you say you laugh in his face, and you go, okay, fine. We will find another Kevin Miller somewhere else. <laughs> we'll find somebody else who is lost on the ice 95% of the time somewhere else because I'm sure we could find that guy probably in Providence, right? 
our AHL affiliate. Let's so that's what I don't get about this deal is how you would even begin to come up internally. Forget about being at the negotiation table, going back and forth again. This idea that they uh, that Kevin Miller's camp would even negotiate and play hardball with the Bruins, given how bad he is, is laughable. But if you're the Bruins, you gotta you gotta stand your ground and say we're not gonna give Kevin Miller a four year deal. That's laughable. But they went the exact opposite way. They gave him a four year deal. I can't understand it. It's stupid. It's confusing. It's frustrating. It's right now. It's what the Bruins are doing. <laughs> and um. Especially where they have to see that they even said that defense is their issue. Now, in fairness to them, I'll give them this too. There's, there, again, the timing of it, there's plenty of time for them to make a, a, a trade or two. Like, they can trade some of these picks, maybe with a player or two, and get a top two defenseman somewhere. All right. And, and, and you know what? Maybe then Kevin Mill is just a depth guy. I still think the contract's ridiculous, but... I don't know that this is it. Like, just because it's the first move they made, it's probably not going to be their last. If it is, then it's a failure of an offseason. But let's give them let's give them the opportunity to have the offseason to make the big offseason defensive move. I just hope if this is the big off the big offseason defensive move, then it's a complete failure. And yeah, heads need to roll before the season even begins. But I would think that that's not going to be the case. So it's a frustrating signing. It's not the news that that you want to see. You want to see Bruins news, but this is not necessarily it. Like, I'd be fine with the fact if they said Kevin Miller's not returning. Like, I, I, right? I'd be fine with it. You know what? I'd be okay if they said they sign him to a one-year deal. Let, let, let Kevin Miller be motivated for one year. Or they offered Kevin Miller one year. He rejected it because he thought he could get two or three somewhere else, and the Bruins refused. They'd say, you know what? All right, the Bruins, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to over pay and give too much for Kevin Miller? He was terrible last year. Yeah, I think I'd have more respect for the Bruins in that sense. But this, a four-year deal for Kevin Miller? I'm losing respect. That doesn't make sense. Stupid. The Bruins have made a lot of stupid moves in the last couple of years. And they continue. Will it, will it get any better? Will the moves get better? Will we be happy about any moves this offseason? Here's what I know. We need to give them the offseason opportunity to make that judgment. So, um, not mad at the timing. At the end of the day, money's terrible, but I'm not even mad at that. I'm just mad at the idea that you think Kevin Miller is good for a four-year extension. I, how? How? On what planet? On what planet are you, are you asking to keep him around for four more years? And they're talking about, in a conference call today, he, again, he turns 29 in November. They're talking about his upside and his room for growth and development. I mean, I feel like we're, we're to the point with Kevin Miller. It's like, if you haven't developed, grown, and shown your upside yet, when the fuck are you going to show it? You haven't shown it in the regular season. You sure as hell haven't shown it in the playoffs. And when you had an opportunity to show it in the playoffs, you turn the puck over in front of your own net. So, it, I'm sorry. I'm not buying into the upside and the room for growth and development, and that's obviously the reason why they gave him four-year extension. They're willing to spend some time on the kid. I've seen enough. You wanted to give him one, If you want to give him one year, get him motivated, work with him this offseason, fine. It's not like he's a 22-year-old kid who's coming out of the queue. Come on now. He's 29. He's going to be 29 in November. He hasn't figured it out yet? I tell you what, 
The NHL isn't a place for 29, 30-year-olds to figure it out. It's not, especially not with a team that needs their defensemen to already have it figured out. Like, they need to go out and bring in defensemen that have it figured out to a point where they can win again and get back to the playoffs. Miller's not that guy, and now you're going to give him a four-year extension. Doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't make sense to me at all. I'm here five days a week, dannypicard.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, anywhere podcasts are available. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all forms of social media. Again, Sean McAdam joins me on tomorrow's show. I am out. Talk to you then.